7. This morning, Mark chapter 7. If you've not picked up your uh, tickets for the 100th anniversary banquet uh, coming up, you can do that every Sunday. They are available in the Family Resource Center, so we encourage you uh, to do so. Let me um, make a few comments about uh, this message. First of all, we're going to deal with the first half of Mark chapter 7. Uh, this morning, we'll pick up the other half next Sunday. Um, this message is, um, and I found it to be in the first service, as I expected, a real challenge. It is, uh, there's some things that, that will be addressed that are difficult to say and um, difficult to hear, even as I was preparing, as the Holy Spirit um, kind of worked me over on some of these issues as well. But we're going to talk about issues of the heart, and um, it is very possible to go through spiritual motions and be faithful to God's house and serve and give and sing and, and engage the service and still have a heart that is distant from God. And uh, there are reasons those things happen, and, and so I want us... As you hear the word this morning, instead of being resistant and, and saying, no, no, that's not for me, I want you to, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and, and really use these truths as a way to kind of gauge your own life and say, where is my heart? Is my heart distant from you, Lord, or are we connected as we need to be? Let's read in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found the fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding their tradition of the elders. When they come, when they come from the marketplace, they don't, don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which have received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines, of, as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, and you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban. I'll talk about that in a moment. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. When he called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, but it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, what comes out of a man? That's what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness. Deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Holy Spirit, um, 
I ask that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room for the next few minutes. I pray, God, that you would help me to speak not even one word of my own, but only that which you have ordained, that which is from you. I pray, God, for your anointing, not because in any way I deserve it or have earned it, but because without it, I cannot rightly divide your word. I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would cause us to have hearts that are pliable, that allow the word of God to to pierce them so that we can ultimately be changed and transformed into your likeness. So minister to us now, speak to us, change us and transform us by your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Michael, uh, Michael Shermer is the publisher of a magazine called Skeptic Magazine. He's also, also the author of the book, The Science of Good and Evil. And uh, he wrote this. He said, I, I once had the opportunity to ask Thomas Kennelly, the author of Schindler's List, what he thought was the difference between Oscar Schindler, the rescuer of Jews and the hero of his story, and Amon Goff, who was the Nazi commander of the Platzko concentration camp. His answer was revealing. Not much, he said. Had there been no war, Mr. Schindler and Mr. Goff might have been drinking buddies and business partners, morally obtuse perhaps, but relatively harmless. What a difference a war makes, especially to the moral choices that lead to good and evil. Schirmer goes on to quote uh, Russian writer Alexander Solzhenstein, and he writes this, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's pretty ominous for Sunday morning to start off a message that way But the fact of the matter is, it agrees with Scripture. His summation agrees with what Jeremiah the prophet said when when he said, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked, and who can know it? Solzhenstein also agrees with Jesus when Jesus said, For from within, it's out of the heart of men that proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and fornication, murders, and thefts, and covetousness, and wickedness, and deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride. All of these things, Jesus said, come from within, and they defile a man. So the prophet Jeremiah and Jesus both agree with Solzingstein, and that is that heart, the heart is the bed or the seed from which evil will emerge. The narrative that we read, the first 23 verses of chapter 7, deals with issues of the heart. It is the critical attitude of the Pharisees who are desperately attempting to trap Jesus that bring all of these heart issues to front and center. Let me tell you the backstory of Mark 7, and I'm going to do it very quickly. This entire section is a sustained narrative concerned with the issues of defilement, both traditional and real. First is the charge of the Pharisees against Jesus and his response to that charge. The Pharisees found fault with the disciples, and very simply they found fault with the disciples because they ate bread without washing their hands first. That was the issue when they saw the disciples doing that. They cornered Jesus and they said, how is it that you allow your disciples to eat bread without first 
washing their hands. Now, I, I need to be honest with the text and tell you that this was just the issue that emerged here. It was just the one that presented itself. But the Pharisees were doing everything they could to trap Jesus and get Jesus caught in some kind of, of argument over the law. Now, you need to understand something, and and this is not something that we would just understand inherently. So let me kind of teach us about this. The the oral tradition of the Jews was passed on by the elders. And the oral tradition was not the law that God gave. God gave Moses the law, and that was mandated and it was required. But what happened is the rabbis and the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes decided that they would interpret that and they would write commentaries just like we do. And before long, there was a whole body of oral tradition passed on from elder to elder, scribe to scribe, that sought to interpret what the law was really saying. And so what happened is that the oral tradition of the elders, not what God said, But the oral tradition of the elders sought to mandate and guard every aspect of the Jews' life. And so when God's law was silent, the oral tradition was almost always very, very vocal. Now, God's law said that the priests were supposed to wash their hands and their feet before they went in to the temple or into the tabernacle, whichever it was, they were to wash their hands and feet before entering the presence of God. You can read that in Exodus chapter 30 and again in chapter 40. But by the year 2 BC, the Pharisees had kind of hijacked that law and they had said, you know what? We should be like the priest and we should wash our hands and feet before we go to morning prayer. And so that became the oral tradition. It's not what God said, but they added to the law their oral tradition. Now, washing their hands before they ate bread was also grounded in the priestly tradition due to the conviction that daily food should be eaten as if it were priestly food. And so what happened is the rabbis started to say, you know what? If the priest washes their hands before they eat food that comes from a sacrifice, we probably ought to carry that over to us and we ought to wash our hands and consider all food to be priestly food. And so we should cleanse ourselves before we eat anything. And that became the oral tradition that was passed on. The Pharisees believed that priestly regulations were for all believers. Now, I I want to give them just a little nod. We don't want to be too hard on the Pharisees. We usually are. At least they were wanting to be holy as God is holy. And so they were doing their best to regulate everybody and for everyone to live lives of holiness. Now, Mark, when he writes this, helps us understand by saying that The Pharisees had added a lot of other practices as well that were beyond the scope of the law. The way that they would wash dishes, the way that they would wash cups and pitchers and proper vessels. All of these were not divine law, but they were oral tradition being passed on from generation to generation. Glad Tidings has probably some oral traditions as well that we pass on. But the problem was the Pharisees were taking those oral traditions and making them at the same level as the divine law. And so they saw Jesus' disciples not washing their hands and they were all over them. So the response of Jesus then forms the second part of this narrative. And he quotes Isaiah and he charges the Pharisees with just having hypocritical lip service. And he said, your hearts are far from me. He accuses them of being more concerned with keeping tradition than they were concerned with keeping the law of God. He said, well, did the prophet Isaiah say when he called you hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, they are worshiping me, teaching as doctrine The commandments of men. They're taking those things that men had made up and they are turning them into doctrinal statements. So then Jesus, moving on that, points out the scribal tradition that was in conflict with the law. In chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, Jesus said, This is proof 
of what I just said, that you are taking the commandments of men and turning them into doctrine. And Jesus gives a very specific example. And everybody look right here. I want you to make sure that you get this because it's a concept that unless someone explains it or you read about it, you're not even going to know what this text says. But Jesus made it clear that the law said, honor your father and mother. How many believe that God mandates that we are to honor our father and mother? And so that was the law of God. The law said, honor your father and mother, but the Jews had developed a tradition. And that tradition was, it wasn't in the law. God didn't give it to Moses. It wasn't something that God said on Mount Sinai. It was just a tradition that had developed among the Jews. And that was that if I had a little nest egg of money sitting over in this account, I could decide that I wanted to consider it Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. And if I declared that, say it was $10,000, and I declared that to be Corbin, and I made a vow, I would make a vow to God and say, that $10,000 is Corbin. What that means is it is set apart for a sacred use. Now, I don't really have to use it for a sacred use, but I now am off the hook, and I don't have to use it for anything else. So if my parents need the money... And, and they are elderly and I want to help them out. I can get out of that requirement to honor my father and mother because that $10,000, I'm sorry, dad, can't help you because I have made a vow to God that it is Corbin. It is set apart for sacred use. And so I can't help you out with that. Now, the problem is most of them never even used it for sacred use, but it got them out of taking care of people they were supposed to take care of. As a matter of fact, it it wasn't just with money. If I wanted to say, well, I'm going to set aside this time. If mom and dad needed some help and they needed somebody to mow the yard or or fix it, well, they wouldn't call me to fix the house. But if they needed somebody to mow the yard, then I would say, well, I've set aside this time as Corbin. I'm sorry I can't help you. This is going to be sacred use. And what Jesus said is you have taken a commandment and a tradition of men And you have used it to get out of a commandment of God. You've used your tradition to get you out of what God commanded you to do. Jesus said, you are making the law of God of none effect through your tradition. And then thirdly, Jesus explains the nature of true true defilement in verses 14 through 23. He explains to his disciples, it's not what comes from without. It's not the dust, the dirt. That's not what defiles a person. What defiles them is what comes out of them. The heart is the source of all spiritual and moral conduct. The writer of Proverbs, by the way, I didn't mention this in the first service, but the writer of Proverbs says to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard it. Out of it, the heart, flow all the issues of life. It's the heart that's really the issue. It's not the stuff. It's not the tradition. It's the heart. So Jesus explains to them that that sinful hearts, no matter how many times they wash their hands, are not pure. You can keep all the rules. Let me just make it real simple. You can come to church Every time the door is open and pay your tithe and a little bit better and serve and work and worship and sing. But if your heart's not pure, all of that stuff doesn't do a thing to make you right with Jesus. Say amen if you believe that this morning. So Jesus says we want to talk about the heart. Evil thoughts, actions are issues of the heart. So this confrontation that Jesus had with the Pharisees brings the concern of heart issues front and center as he tries to teach his disciples how to effectively reach their world, but he knew that they couldn't do it unless their heart was right. And um, and that's where it brings us to today as well. I'm going to talk about five different kind of signs that um, we have heart issues And I'm going to tell you, to be honest, none of the five are easy. A couple of them are even more difficult than others to talk about. But um, I don't say this with any degree of of 
pride or cockiness, but God did not call me um, to be a politician. He didn't call me to be a builder. He didn't call me to be a, an athlete. He called me to preach his word and to pastor people. And sometimes pastoring means we have to deal with tough issues to make sure that our hearts are right with Jesus. And so I want to talk about these five things, and I want you to use them as a checklist in your own life. I have in mind, and I have been found wanting in more on more than one of these But I hope that you want your heart to be near to Jesus, that you want it to be tender to him. And so we have to be honest with ourselves. Number one, um, we know that we have a heart issue when we fail to rejoice in the meaningful and the eternal because we are consumed by the trivial and the inconsequential. This, This is really a very simple point, and I think you'll get it very quickly. Jesus had just healed a paralyzed man, set a demon possessed man free fed 5,000 people that were starving with five loaves and two fish and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And the religious people were focused on his disciples not washing their hands before they ate bread. Does that not sound, come on, just look at me for a moment. Does that not sound ridiculous? Does that not nod your head if that's the uh, ridiculous to you? That these spiritual leaders, after the healing of a paralyzed man and feeding of 5,000, a demon-possessed man being set free and a little girl being raised from the dead, and instead of rejoicing in that, isn't God good? They said, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat bread. That was a tough lesson for me to learn in ministry. I did not know people were like that until about 1986. I had a good first year in ministry. I had one out of 30-some. That's not bad. A good first year. And uh, everything was good. Everybody was happy. And then we started building a building. Church grew and it was time to build a building. And and uh, we had this one gentleman on our board that was he, he was... He was a crusty-hearted dude, I'm telling you. He was, he, he, was, he was pretty rough around the edges. But he had a son that, that had never served God, in fact, was living a life that was very counter to God. He never wanted anything to do with church. And yet, in the last three months prior to the building program, he started coming to church. And uh, he softened up, and he started singing the songs. And we got into this building project, and, and there was a little stir about how thick the roof sheeting was going to be on the roof. And, uh, and I was 22 years old. I had, well, I'm 55, and I still don't know how thick it's supposed to be, but I certainly didn't know at 22. And there was an argument going on back and forth, and he lost. This board member lost. That board member whose son, after all these years, had not served God at all, left the church. His son never came back, never Return to serving the Lord. All because the roof sheeting wasn't thick enough. Folks, that's trivial and inconsequential when compared to the life of a young man who had not been serving Jesus, but the Holy Spirit was beginning to work in his life. I just want you to understand music style, room temperature, dress code, Bible versions, Frequency of communion, the way the sanctuary is used, do not rise to the level of a lost son or a lost daughter or a lost spouse or an addicted person that needs to be set free or someone dying of a terminal illness that needs to be healed. They simply do not rise to that level. And if we cannot rejoice in the goodness of God because we are focused on the trivial and inconsequential We have an issue of the heart that we need God to work on. Number two. Pastor Clayton, it's good so far. The amen, that one. All right. Number two, when we fail to trust the Spirit's power to transform people's lives. Rather, but, but instead we lean rather on human effort. Pharisees were not the power brokers of the Jewish society. We kind of have that wrong. I think we read the text. We think the Pharisees were the ones really controlling. They were not. They were the minority. 
But boy, they were struggling to impose their morality and their vision for obedience to the law on the rest of the Jewish society. Maintaining purity was the key item. That was number one on their agenda. Every board meeting for the Pharisees, number one on that agenda was we've got to maintain purity. People have to wash their hands. They gotta wash their they gotta wash their pots that they're cooking in. They've got to only walk so many steps and then wait. We've got to get people lined up with our vision of purity. And they expected Jesus and his followers to conform to their standard of purity. And they were galled when this prophetic figure, Jesus of Nazareth, showed up and did not do it their way. Man, that made them mad. He was this messianic figure. And they were fighting to change culture and produce holiness through their efforts. And Jesus didn't buy into that at all. And yet we try to do the same in the church today. We're not the majority in our society any longer, in case you didn't know that. We try desperately to change the moral code of America But we try to do it only through politics or rhetoric or media or protest. And in many cases, we have sold ourselves out in that process. What about prayer? What about seeking the face of God? If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. What about discipling people so that one by one they change their culture? Born again, change, transform, people begin to lead, even in the political arena. Instead of changing from the outside in, why not disciple people so that we are changed in that manner? What about the power of the Word of God to change the hearts and lives of people? In 1927, Director Cecil DeMille cast a British actor, H.B. Warner, as Jesus in the silent film, The King of Kings. Warner, 19 years later, became the druggist in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. But DeMille was very concerned that Warner, this is 1927, and he's playing Jesus in this movie, and so he kept Warner on a short leash. He didn't want him to do anything that would create a un-Jesus-like image and somehow bring bad or negative publicity to the film. And so DeMille enforced strict measures to ensure that Warner kept up a good Jesus image during the time that he was filming this movie. Both Warner and his co-star Dorothy Cummings, who was who played Mary, the mother of Jesus, both had to sign a five-year contract that they would not appear in a film, at least for five years, that would in any way be kind of non-Jesus-like, that would, would disparage the character of Jesus. During the filming, Warner was driven to the set with blinds drawn. He had to wear a black veil as he was delivered to the set. DeMille separated Warner from the other cast members. He forced him to eat alone every day. He couldn't play cards. He couldn't go to ball games. He couldn't ride in a convertible. I have no idea how that's sinful, but he couldn't ride in a convertible. And he couldn't go swimming the whole time he was taping that movie. But unfortunately, the regimen of rules and regulations did not make Warner more holy. Instead of all of that pressure to be Christ-like, without having the power and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, drove Warner over the edge. And during the production of The King of Kings, instead of acting more like Jesus, he relapsed into an addiction with alcohol that ultimately destroyed his life. Only the Spirit of God can change people's lives and hearts. How many believe that? Say amen. We must pray and seek God's presence to be here so that people's lives are changed in the presence of God. 
Number three, and this is the one that, that is going to challenge all of us at the very least. We have a heart issue when we are searching for spiritual loopholes created by our human tradition to avoid being obedient to the command of God to love. Just looking at the point, how many would agree with that statement? Is that, is that not a problem when we look for a loophole not to love someone? Say amen if you believe that. But we do it all the time. So with the disciples or the Pharisees, they came up with their own little tradition. I'm going to make a vow and I'm going to call that Corbin so I don't have to fulfill the command to honor my father and mother. I've got a loophole now. I've made a loophole. And because there is this vow, I don't have to do what God has told me to do. It's kind of hard to find a correlative experience in our world today. In fact, that's generally not the case today. Many times people give what they would normally give to the work of God to family members to help them out. So we really don't have that issue. But yet... The issue that's on the screen, creating loopholes in our tradition to avoid God's command to love happens all the time. I'm going to ask you just to listen this morning carefully. American evangelicalism has hidden under a human construct of national pride and patriotism and nationalism to avoid the divine command to love our neighbor as ourselves. I don't want to be very careful with what I said because I know this is an issue that, that we all struggle with. And I acknowledge that this is an issue that I struggle with as well. And yet, again, my call is not to anything other than to preach the gospel. And so I wrote this out. I'm going to read it just as I wrote it. The American church has often covered up an internal darkness and an internal coldness with an external and religious fervor that is often immersed in political wrangling. But what happens to our mission field when the very people that we are called to reach with the gospel that will save them from hell when those very people become our hated enemies in the political arena because they have another descent or a different skin color or a different religion. And so they are no longer our friends and our neighbors that we are called to love. We found the loophole. When we do that, we cancel out the word of God to meet our own traditions. What happens to the church's effectiveness when we create a version of Jesus that is formed in our own image. And then we weaponize that version of Jesus with social media and online attacks on those not like us. And we use his word as hateful rhetoric toward those with whom we disagree. When we do that, we cancel out the word of God to meet our own tradition. What happens when the church's insistence on moral holiness and godly family values for its leaders does a 180 flip when those in question are of our political persuasion and flavor and their policies better fit the selfish motive of our own agendas? Cancel out the word of God to meet our own tradition. The church has created a tsunami of integrity, of an integrity crisis among a very lost world. We've lost our credibility in many cases with a lost world. The very lost world that we are supposed to be reaching by exposing the fact that public figures are held accountable by evangelicals or given a free pass, adjudicated solely on the color of the candidate's brand. It's a difficult issue to dance around, and we are giving the appearance that our faith is for sale. We cancel out the word of God to meet our own tradition. 
When we are proud and bold to proclaim our conservative values, our Second Amendment commitment, our Republican status, and our patriotic fervor, that we are ashamed to say that Jesus is Lord and that the love of Christ constrains us to reach every Hispanic and every Muslim with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we cancel out the word of God to meet our own tradition. It's never been this quiet before at Glad Tidings. <laughs> Believing in American exceptionalism and crying when we sing God Bless America, though beautiful, is not synonymous with loving Jesus first and most and living as a citizen of heaven. We are called to seek his kingdom first and to acknowledge that we are strangers and foreigners here. When American citizenship and patriotism trumps the kingdom of God, it has become idolatry and we have a major heart issue. We cancel out the word of God to meet our own tradition. Let me be clear. I don't want America to become a socialist. I don't want to become a Muslim country or a communist country, and I pray we do not. But what I fear more is the church ceasing, ceasing to be the church. We must be the church in whatever context we find ourselves living and must not trade our call to share the gospel for hate-filled rhetoric that turns away the very people we are called to reach with the message of Jesus' love by our own hypocrisy. Let me explain this and I'll be done. When Jesus looked for a metaphor to describe the kingdom of God, you know what metaphor he used? Yeast. It was invisible. It was a humble ingredient that slowly changed everything it encountered. That is what we are called to do. This yeast-like movement of the multiplication of Jesus' disciples is what led the Roman government to bend its will to the revolution of truth. But before long, Christianity became Christendom as it grasped for earthly power and the transformational influence of the yeast was no longer. How do we restore this transformational power? Through humility, Brokenness through prayer, through surrender, through the gospel. To obey the command to love our neighbor as ourself. And for faith to believe that the word of God is alive and is powerful. And the spirit of God can change people's lives if we will trust him to do so. I am very afraid that the American church has lost its credibility with the lost world because we have changed focus. Paul said to the church, listen, Paul wouldn't even get involved in the politics of the church at Corinth. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet the church has been so willing to trade that message. Is it because we no longer believe that that message changes people's hearts and lives? Jesus may say, you hypocrites, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Leviticus 19, if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And Jesus said, the king will one day answer and say, truly I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Have we found a loophole that releases us from the call to love our neighbor? Number four, and I'll give you these last two quickly. Uh, when we avoid the messy and broken to maintain the safe and the comfortable, we have a hard issue. The Pharisees were so concerned about cleanliness outwardly, and they wouldn't touch the unclean. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Both the priest and a Levite passed by the man that was unclean and beaten and bleeding and wounded. They did not want to risk becoming unclean. But the Samaritan came by. He was his neighbor. And he cared for him. 
This story came in response to the question, How must, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus said, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told this story. The answer, be a neighbor, and everyone is your neighbor. The people of God today too often are afraid to get dirty. Mark Pearson in his The Unangelic Mission of the Church says God meant for the church to get mixed up in messes and with people who have messed up their lives. It is a fact too long neglected that the church has in common with the chimney sweep that it cannot do its job in comfortable surroundings or with clean hands. In this sense, cleanliness is not next to godliness. Dirt is. Dirt, pain, sorrow, prejudice, Injustice and treachery is where the church needs to be the church. We have a heart issue when we avoid the messy and broken to stay safe and comfortable. And finally, number five, we have a heart issue when we exert great energy to harness the actions of others, but we do little to guard our own hearts. I'm going to comment on this, but I want you to stand if you would. We're almost done this morning. Stay put if you can. I want to close together. We have a heart issue when we exert great energy to harness others' actions, but we do very little to guard our own hearts. The Pharisees were all about the disciples of Jesus. They were unclean. All their energy was put into them. They're unclean. They called out their filth. But their own hearts were far from God. And we do the same. See everybody else's fault, but not our own. And his autobiography, Be Myself, Warren Wearsby, tells a story about the first church that he built as a pastor, a little small church in Indiana, as a matter of fact. He was at a committee meeting and Mr. Shutt was the architect. And uh, Warren Wearsby said he learned something about both theology and architecture that he wasn't taught in seminary. As Mr. Shutt was laying out the, the plans for the building, Warren Wearsby, the pastor, said, why do we need such an expensive high ceiling in the auditorium? We're not building a cathedral. Why can't we just build an auditorium with a flat room and then put a church facade in front of the building? Make it look like a church on the outside. Wearsby writes that in that very quiet voice, the architect, Mr. Shutt, said, Pastor, the building you construct reflects what a church is and what a church does. You don't use facades on churches to fool people. That's for carnival sideshows. The outside and the inside must agree. And I would say that of every believer. The outside and the inside need to agree. We can lift our hands on Sundays. We can throw our money in the offering bag. We can teach a class. We can sing the top of our lungs on the outside. What are our hearts like on the inside? too often focused on the inconsequential and the insignificant but the eternal is left unattended we try to change people with our strength instead of letting the Holy Spirit change them do we look for loopholes and justify our unwillingness to love everybody do we do our best to avoid the messy and the broken Do we exert energy to harness other people's issues? We don't guard our own hearts. Holy Spirit, speak to us today. God, there's a lot of issues in my heart that need to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. So easy for me to find an excuse not to love so easy for me to trust my persuasion or think that somehow I can change someone instead of letting you change them. So easy for me to exert my energy 
to find the fault of others when all the while I'm walking around with a telephone pole in my own eye and I can't really even see the speck that I'm accusing someone else to have in theirs. Change my heart, God. And make me like you. Make glad tidings a church that stays focused, that affects our culture, that allows the kingdom like the yeast and like the mustard seed to grow and to affect everyone and everything that we come in contact with. Make our hearts turn toward you. That's my prayer. Heads bowed for just a moment this morning. I wonder if there might be someone here today who would say, Pastor, I've never received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. My heart's not right with Him. But I want to know Jesus today. Before I leave, I want to know for sure that my heart is right with Him. Would you pray for me? Is there anyone in this room that would slip a hand up right where you're at? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else that would slip up a hand and say, I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Anyone else this morning? I wonder, uh, with your head still bowed for just a moment, not going to have you come to the front. I wonder how many would say, Pastor Kevin, um, there are some things in my life, in my heart, that if I'm honest... I need to submit more fully to the Holy Spirit. I don't want my heart to be distant. And um, I want to be included in this final prayer that my heart would be more fully submitted to Him. And it's difficult at times, but would you pray for me? How many would raise their hand and say, "That's, that's where I'm at? There's several hands. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. Sing that again. Change my heart.
God, I ask that you would check my heart regularly. And David even prayed, see if there be some wicked way in me. See, Lord, if there's an attitude of my heart that, that may be prejudiced or that may be pointing out the fault of someone else. Or maybe with an attitude that presumes upon God's grace. Or maybe an attitude that doesn't even consider what someone else is going through. It just assumes that they are a certain way because of a stereotype that we have allowed to creep into our hearts. Lord, this is a difficult task in a difficult world. I'm so thankful that you really made it easier than we sometimes make it because you remind us if we will remember that we are citizens of heaven. You commanded us to seek first the kingdom of God. Help us, Lord, not to uh, somehow confuse the kingdom of God with the evil culture in which we live. It doesn't abide by those same principles. So I pray, God, that you would check my heart, guard it regularly, even from an attitude of piety that somehow thinks that I've arrived. God, keep us all broken and humble. Keep our hearts turned toward you, soft and pliable, so that you can shape us and make us what you called us to be. Lord, give us a new boldness in the workplace and in the schools to be unashamed that we love Jesus, to be unashamed to tell people about the power of Christ to save. Give us, Lord, that courage and that boldness. And Lord, I pray that you would also give us the wisdom to make certain that that which we confess is aligned with that which with which we live. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your restoration. Thank you for the wholeness that you provide us. Through the blood of Jesus and the power of your spirit. Make us like you. Mold us and make us into your image so that we can grow up in the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ. Make a difference in our lost world.